I believe in no God, no invisible man in the sky. But there is something more powerful than each of us, a combination of our efforts, a great chain of industry that unites us. But it is only when we struggle in our own interest that the chain pulls society in the right direction. The chain is too powerful and too mysterious for any government to guide. Any man who tells you different either has his hand in your pocket or a pistol to your neck. Will the circle be Hello, my name is Hamid Rezani Kufar and this is Gameology Conversations. In this holy episode I've spoken with the hero of my life, the great Ken Levine, who created the Bioshock series. I know, wow. Now much has been said in the conversation, so I cut it short here. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. How are you, Hamid? I'm excellent. I feel like the luckiest guy in the world. I mean, if I die, I'll happily say I spoke with my hero, with the hero of my life. So that's how I feel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, they say to never meet your heroes. They're always disappointing. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, sir, uh, <coughs> let, let me start with a story, uh, a true sure. story. A very personal story. It might be boring for people, but it's very important for me to tell you this. It's uh, it's going to be a long speech, but I have to tell it. So, you tell it. Yeah. Uh, when I was a kid, before I learned to read, I was always wondering about books. I didn't know what was in them. All, all I knew was uh, it must be something magical because people would sit for hours and stare at them with a face full of emotions. So when I finally learned to read, I was so excited that I went, uh, I went to my dad's library, huge collection, collection of books. Among all these political, philosophical, history books, I saw a strange book, a very different book, a book with uh, pictures of cartoon animals on it. It was, it was odd. Uh, why is daddy reading children's book? I, I looked at the title and it was Animal Farm by George Orwell. So uh, I started to read it right away, turning pages and I'm lost. What is this book? It's a book with talking animals. So I'm kind of pretty sure it's a children's book, but it feels not. It feels that I'm not supposed to read it. You know, uh, anyway, I finished the book and I thought the last pages of the book was missing. I was like, what was that about? Where is the rest of the story? Anyway, months later, I read an old article in Daddy's newspaper again about the subtext of that story, and I was shocked. All those times I was reading a book with political and philosophical subtext, and after that, I felt powerful. I felt like a grown man with others when others were reading Cinderella I was reading Orville, so I, that felt amazing. And uh, after that, I was... How old were you? I don't, I don't know. I think eight, uh, nine, probably. Wow. And uh, yeah, after that, I was always saving money to buy more Orwells, reading 1984, and I'm like kid in the Disneyland. The fact is, while reading these books, I felt respected. I felt like a grown man more than anything. I 
felt like I know the truth behind everything. I, f I, I felt more I read, more I get close to the lighthouse in the middle of a dark and deceiving ocean. So I decided to do the same. I decided to be a storyteller. I went to film school with a dream of adapting 1984 in a feature film with a dream of a creating utopias just to be able to make them dystopias. So skip forward and I'm, I read somewhere in an interview with a guy who's making a game called Bioshock. Now, why is that interesting? Because I'm a video game fan. Yes, there must be one reason because it looks amazing. Absolutely undeniable. Or is it the fact that I read the guy who made this was influenced by George Orwell and Ayn Rand? So when it was released, I played the game. I had a very familiar feeling. I felt like a child being treated like a grown man again. I felt like a child seeing the truth in the dark of the ocean. I felt like a child being so inspired and decided to, to be someone more. And what I did... I made a plaque on my wall that said, what would Ken Levine do? And that plaque changed my life. I, I became a game designer. Also, I became the one who never gets tired of writing screenplays. So one day, he can inspire the next generation. Now, there is no more plaque on my wall, but a mirror to remind myself, who am I going to be? Uh, what am I going to do? So, sir, you gave me hope. You gave me inspiration. You gave me purpose, and you taught me taught to cho taught me to choose the impossible. Thank you for everything. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're the one doing the work, and I'm the one getting the credit. But um, <laughs> thank you very much for saying that. I'm, I'm I'm flattered to be included in the company of of Orwell. Um, but I, I think that's a you know the brilliance of that book is a young man, a young woman can read that book, yeah, and and understand it and the ideas it talks about you'll be wrestling with till you're old i think yeah uh that's amazing so uh let's talk about you sir i'm very curious to know more about your childhood because you know i kind of believe in an, ind an individual is a reflection of his or her surrounding in a community or a i'm so sorry let's do it again no so you were talking about the uh inspirations you got in t uh, when you were uh, just a teenager yeah um you know probably very similar to yours i, I um i was really drawn to certain pieces of fiction um yeah. there was a bunch of stuff that came out when i was a kid like logan's run and um rollerball and planet of the apes all these sort of dystopian stories um, yeah and um I was really attracted to this. I don't really know why, um, but I was drawn to them. You know, with with Logan's Run, I read the saw the movie and I read the book several times. And I, I wasn't a big reader as a kid, so that was sort of one of the books that got me into reading. I think you were ahead of the curve with me. Yeah. I read that book like five times, and um, wow. something about it just sort of somebody who could imagine an entire society it was very appealing to me. Um, yeah. And um, then I, I didn't come to Orwell probably till high school, and uh, I probably read Animal Farm first, and that was really, um, you know, obviously the kind of political ideas he was dealing with there were far more sophisticated than you know Logan's Run, yeah, um, and Brave New World and and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it was it was a kind of fiction I was always really drawn to. Yeah, 
uh, I heard in a conference that she said, uh, ideas are rubbish. Anyone can come up with ideas. What matters is execution of ideas. Looking back at your games, it's amazing. I mean, Bioshock, for example, is for, full of different ideas. Each have potential of becoming a standalone game. So the question is, how do you make sure a good idea is going to be, ex is going to be ex executed well? And how do you make sure they work together perfectly? I think the key is, is there's no, I mean, I don't know if there's an answer to that question, except like trial and error, you know, the, yeah. with, with all the ideas, the important thing that we always try to keep in mind is that we're making something for an audience and eventually somebody who's not us, somebody who's not us or the team members or our family or friends or our parents are, are going to play it and they're not going to have any reason to, um, like our thing more than the other thing mm -hmm. we're asking you know we're asking a lot from people man we're asking them for their money and their time yeah. which is very, very valuable so we wish i put ourselves in the position of the, the person on the, the receiving end we only have one chance with them we and we better um we, we better we better we better do our best to get their attention mm -hmm. and that requires you to sort of look at your own work in a different way than you know, oh, I had a great idea, or oh, I wrote, wrote a great story. And ideas and stories are just building blocks for the yeah. thing you eventually deliver. You know, and you have to be very willing to be a critic of your own work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, uh, I believe a story in a video video game must not be told; it must be experienced, and and that makes the games different than other media's. I mean. I'm a game designer and, I'm, uh, and a filmmaker too, but I can't stop. I can't stand stand uh, cutscenes and stories being told like cinema. We have a jewel of gameplay in video games, and yet we are trying to rip off Hollywood with cheap, awfully directed cutscenes. Uh, but but you work uh, you work differently, and uh, that I think makes it impossible to make, a, say, a film adaptation of Bioshock equally good as the game. Because if the Bioshock was a film, we would probably say this to the hero of the story. Go kill the big daddy. Because A, we'll watch a cool action scene. B, you're the protagonist. And you're not going to die in the middle of the story. But in the game, you have a choice. You fail, you're going to repeat it uh, until you get past it. And here, uh, the option of leaving the big daddy in peace is much more understandable. And the uh, ch choices and the experiences we have in a game will eventually make it different than uh, other medias. So story-wise, games are experienced, not just stories. A very fresh example is Play, play Dead's Inside. No dialogue, no voices, no bullshit, and it feels like the best story ever told. So how do you use the possibility of gameplay in order to tell an engaging and compelling story without the use of goddamn boring cutscenes? I think bringing up Inside is a very valuable yeah. addition to the conversation because Inside... I think it's the best game I played probably in a couple of years, and it's um, it's it uses the medium extremely well in the sense that it um, you know, the entire goal of the game that you're never told what it is, but basically it's the right side of the screen is more attractive than the left side of the screen. For yeah, you, right. 
Exactly. You're trying to get from the right side of the screen. The left side, sorry, the left side of the screen is less attractive. Yeah, that's what I said. You're trying to get from the left side to the right side. Mm-hmm. And that's a thing that can only exist in a game, right? You know, yeah. that, that, that you have this sort of notion of moving forward is preferable to staying where you are. And um, the fact that they do so little, I think there's a, there's a lot to learn from films there too. Like, yeah. have, you seen, have you seen a film Under the Skin? Yeah, absolutely. Great movie. Um, you know, they they tell you very little in that movie as well. They sort yeah. of leave a lot to your imagination. And I love, I tend to love stories like that. Um, you know, going back to, you know, Kubrick and um, Paul Thomas Anderson and filmmakers like that. My, are my favorite, favorite kind of film. Because they leave a lot. They don't tell you what to think. They just sort of present yeah. a lot of interesting ideas. Um, and inside, it's very... Um, gave you a lot of leeway to for you to say what's happening here, especially the ending, which I think a lot of people found confounding, which I found brilliant. Yeah. Um, but I, I'm not sure I agree with you that something's not adaptable. Uh, I think it's uh, adaptation's the key word. You know, like mm-hmm. you can turn Bioshock into a symphony, right? Yeah. Um, it would be a very different piece of work um, mm-hmm. because different artists, I'm convinced of one thing. I'm convinced that there's an artistic impulse inside of people, right? And how that comes out of us is different depending on the person. Some people turn that artistic impulse into a piece of music. You know, like, I'm not a musician, so I I don't know how to turn an idea into a piece of music. But, you know, if you're, you know, if you're, um, you know, Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead, who also did the score of of, um, There Will Be Blood, you'll have an idea about it how to get that idea out, right? And he scored that he scored that and, and PT Anderson would have a different idea of how to get a film how to get the idea out, which will be his his component of the film. Yeah. Um, which you know the the direction and the writing and the work with the actors. I, I believe the artistic impulse is the same. It just comes out of people in different ways. Mm-hmm. So I think of this you can think of the same thing about a piece of art that you just have to figure out as a screenwriter, say if you're writing a movie of that, mm-hmm. how is that artistic impulse channel into a film versus a game? Yeah, and uh, it's funny you mentioned Paul Thomas Anderson because uh, aside, uh, I had uh, like uh, f- four or five plaques on my wall, and it was uh, what would Ken Levine do? What would Paul Thomas Anderson do? What would Christopher Nolan do? What would Hans Zimmer do? What would Terrence Malick do? Uh, you, you 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 set your sights. Um... Those other guys, you set your sights pretty high. Those are some pretty powerful creators um, uh, up there. Well, I mean, look, I I think you mentioned that you took those plaques down. I think that is a good thing to do because at the end of the day, those are – those people can inspire you. You know, they can give you sort of directions and in, in how to think about problems. But at the end of the day, what people are going to be drawn to is how you solve those problems. Exactly. Uh, now, uh, your games deal with a lot of political, philosophical issues. How do you insert them in your games? Is the story based on those factors, or uh, you have they come along as you uh, write? How's the process working? I think in the best case, you're working with um, character and. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you look at Andrew Ryan, you can't separate Andrew Ryan as a person from Andrew Ryan as a political figure, right? Because yeah. his 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 response to pain is political, right? Yeah. I'm going to create a society. 
that is going to protect me from that pain. And I think that's what most people are trying to do with politics. They don't get into politics because, well, I mean, if you're honestly getting into politics, you're not just trying to look for you know bribes or whatever. You don't get into yeah. politics because you you like politics. You're getting in as a response to something that's distressing you or upsetting you. And you know, we're all wrestling with different kinds of you know demons and yeah, some you know the expression of the wrestling for me is artwork. The expression of the wrestling for other people is going into politics. And so I tend to write about, I'm, I have no interest in going into politics. I, I would find it, I like making politics in the games because I can sort of have a lot of control in the games. Yeah. I'd be very frustrated with lack of control you have in the real world of politics. It's yeah. not a world I ever was interested in. But I think that you start with the character, you start with like, well, what's that person's problem? And what's their solution? I've chosen characters whose solutions tend to be political. Yeah. Now, uh, you have a fear that your game become too complicated and sophisticated to understand. I mean, people might say, "Screw it! I have to read. A, I have to read books to understand this." Do I have that fear? Um, yeah. No, I mean, I, I don't think. I think the ideas as presented are. You could play Bioshock and really just view it as a cool dungeon crawl. You know. Yeah, uh, with cool art characters and stuff. I don't think you really have to walk away, you know, struggling with the issues of, you know, capitalism and and the extreme and, and the extremes of capitalism or the limitations of communism or the um, or any of those things. I think you could just play it as an experience. I think you won't get the full value out of it. Um, but I I think that there's you know the goal is that I think if if you have to enjoy a piece of art on every single level the author intended to it it's not really an effective piece of art because you really have to assume there's a broad audience that's going to be attracted to different parts of what you're doing yeah uh, imagine i want to tell a story and i have some intentions of course the main goal is to tell a great story but i want to express my ideologies through this story i want to talk to people behind it uh how do i do it without being so blunt um, well, what do you, I'm not sure what you mean. I mean, uh, how, how can I, uh, talk about, uh, how, how can I, uh, talk about something else in my story without getting caught? I mean, for well, I for example, key, talking about capitalism, for example. For the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think the interesting thing is, you know, is that you have to start from a position of story, exactly what you just said, that at the end of the day, there has to be a story to follow. Um, you know, yeah. Animal Farm is brilliant because you could read it. Like you said, as a kid, it's a bunch of, about a bunch of animals who stage a revolution at, at, at the um, at the farmhouse, and yeah. and that's a story. Like you can tell somebody that story, and they're like, "Oh, that sounds like an interesting story." Like, what if the animals took over the farm? What would happen? And you don't really necessarily have to understand anything about Trotsky and Lenin and, and Stalin and all that to yeah. understand that that story is really about them, or even about politics on a larger issue than just the you know the the the, the, the Russian Revolution. Um, you know, I knew nothing about the Bolshevik revolution when I was a, a kid, mm -hmm. when I read that book, I still took something away from the story just as an example of people and how, you know, you know, they're animals, how people don't live up to their own ideals they create, that it's very, yeah. very hard. You create a system of ideology and it's hard to live up to it. And I don't think that that's, you don't have to, that's not just true for politics. I mean, we all, I have this expression do you have the term skin in the game in iran in, in english 
No, no. That means, what that means is what, if you believe something, what are you willing to give up for it? Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, you think you see a lot of political figures who talk about X, Y, or Z, but they want other people to change and they're not willing to give up things for them, themselves. And the Russian revolution is a great example. Yeah. So it was all about a worker revolution. And then suddenly you find, you know, the people in power are living in, you know, have special privileges. Um, when the, and the revolution is supposed to be about the abolition of privilege, of privilege. Um, and so I think that there's a, um, you know, there's stories you can tell that don't really have to even people know them to be political. Exactly. Yeah. And they're still political. Like, for instance, you could talk about morale. Like, you know, people will talk about homosexuality and they'll say, you know, yeah. um, you know, I think this is how other people should act in their bedrooms. But meanwhile, they wouldn't want anybody coming to their bedroom and telling them how to act. Yeah. Um, that's, an, you know, that's, for example, of skin in the game that, you know, you are you want other people to change, but you're not willing to change yourself. Yeah. Uh, have you ever got into trouble because of the content of your games? Yeah, I mean, you're going to piss people off. Um, <laughs> always, you know, I think that, you know, our first game, our, well, Bioshock, the first game dealt with infanticide, you know, the killing of children. And mm -hmm. the, most people who react to these things tend to be the game's press, not the actual public themselves. Yeah. I think the public is actually fairly... Um, willing to accept a lot of challenging material, I think the press tends to worry that, you know, they're going to get, I got so many questions on Bioshock one about, um, about the, you know, the little sister harvesting from mm -hmm. the press. And when the game came out, I think I read one article. Well, I, I never had a single, I had one person the entire time, actual person come up and talk to me about how that bothered them. Oh. Um, it, it became a non-issue. People understood it was a metaphor. Mm -hmm. um, and um, people are a little smarter than I think the press might give them credit for. Yeah. Now, uh, I've been a game designer for years now, and I've designed some successful games. I've made good money out of them. But ironically, I've never designed a game where I can tell my personal stories. And uh, unfortunately, in Iran, we mostly make games for mobile devices, and I fucking hate mobile games in my opinion they're not experiences because they're being played in subway with a bad breath of a homeless guy standing beside you and they're <laughs> being played without sound being played on small screens and you're in, the, yeah. you're in the middle of a game and suddenly a message comes don't forget to buy broccolis and it ruins the game and they're casual as hell and uh they're the games for having good times not meaningful times so anyway i'm in this limbo and l recently i'm uh, moving more toward my filmmaking career because uh, I think I think I have more freedom to tell the stories there, and it's a shame because video games are a great place to tell the stories. So, what would you do if you were in my shoes when you uh, when your when your head is full of experiences, but there's no ink in the pen when uh, it's really hard to make your dream project? Well, I mean, so I sort. I have to start by asking you a question. Yeah. Um, I don't, I'm not exactly entirely clear on what sort of like constraints there are in Iran from, and there may be none. I don't, I don't actually know. Like as a creator, do you have the governmental constraints of what you can and can't work on? Yeah, we have, but, uh, but that not, that's not the, uh, you know, issue. It's, it's mostly not. a market, a market issue. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. 
the the PC market is not very good, but mobile market is absolutely great. So we have. Let me ask you a question: If you're making PC games for distribution on Steam, yeah, um, it, it, what what's to keep you from from doing that? Uh, the cost of making a PC game, wow. and and. And the pr- problems we have the releasing the game outside a country, you know, here, here we can simply just make a small game and have a lot of money out of it. And but uh, international market is is really hard, and it's, it's it needs money to make that. Actually, no one gonna take risk to do that. So I think the answer I would give you, and and again, I'm sorry because I'm I'm not. I don't want to sound glib here, you know, yeah. because, because, you know, we all live in different places with different yeah, sure. sets of economic challenges and government challenges, et cetera, mm-hmm. publishing challenges. But I would say that the best trick to do is to, um, is to fool people. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean to create things that people don't actually know are political. Yeah. Um, because people hear politics and they get turned off, right? Like if I, yeah. you know, if I was, Shock. I think what made Bioshock work is with the opening of the game was exciting and compelling and mysterious and strange and weird. Mm-hmm. And you didn't really even know that much about the politics at the very beginning. Um, it's, you know, it starts with a plane crash, right? It, yeah. you know, we try to draw in right at the, at the start. Um, it's a Robinson Crusoe story. You know that story about the, the, the guy shipwrecked on the desert island? Exactly. Um, you know, so it was drawing from a, a long tradition of certain types of stories. <laughs> and I think that if we have put on the box, if the game had been called, you know, Objectivist Underwater City, it wouldn't have done as well as it's called Bioshock. Yeah. Um, because people, politics make people nervous because they associate a lot of negative things with them. So I think that, and same with Animal Farm, right? It's called Animal Farm. It's not called an examination of the fragility of ideological systems. You know, it's called sure. Animal Farm. And you picked it, if, you, if it had been called that and it didn't have pigs and donkeys on the cover, you probably wouldn't have picked it up when you were a little kid. Exactly. Um, so I would say that there's, you know, even as long as, if you want to work in those spaces, you have to figure out a way to communicate to people in a way that's, you sort of go in the back door yeah. a little bit where they can't see you coming and, you have to surprise people with the messages by leading with entertainment first. And that's always the case. The best, the most tr- transformative art is, is, is almost always really good and entertaining and high quality. Yeah. So start with that. What is a great story I can tell? Mm-hmm. And then worry about getting the message across. Yeah. Start with a great story. And if you do that and say, how do I make people how do I leave with the story rather than the idea ideology of what I want to get across? How do I leave with my story? Yeah. Thank you. That's a great answer. So uh, I'm wondering when you're hiring people, what qualifications are you looking for? Um, it depends on where, you know, what you're doing for us now, we're a much smaller team. And so our hiring is really based upon um, being somebody who's, we're a very senior team of people. Yeah. And so, People who are rather senior who don't need any management because we don't really have a management structure anymore. We really just depend upon people to, um, you know, to do a lot of their self management. And we have we have some management, but but it's but the goal is really that people can be quite self led um, in our group. 
but when we were doing infinite, you know, we, we needed a much broader, we, we needed a lot more people. So we needed a much broader range of, of, of talent types. So we tend to look for people who are comfortable working in an environment where, you know, they're comfortable criticizing and being criticized mm-hmm. as well. Um, people who don't think they have all the answers who are open to being wrong. Um, people who are obviously skilled and, and have this sort of technical skills, but also um, want, are always willing to sort of step back from their own work and say, can I make it better? Yeah. Can I make it better? How can I make this better? Because there is no piece of work that couldn't be made better. It's all a question of time, right? Yeah. At some point, you have to put your pencils down. But until that point happens, every any work can be improved upon. Any work, anybody's work. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about Bioshock. Bless your ears for selecting Armin Shimmerman for Andrew Ryan. The guy is a legend. How did you find out that he's a, he's going to be the voice of Andrew Ryan? We just had auditions and, you know, open auditions. There's a service, they have services here where you like, basically people, you send out an audition material and people just read from it and record it and send it to you. And I heard Armin and I was, you know, I was sort of somewhat familiar with him from Buffy, the vampire slayer he was mm-hmm. on, but he playing a very different role. And also Deep Space Nine, I wasn't that familiar with Deep Space Nine, yeah. but it was a very different part. And I heard his voice and it was, Armin's voice is actually pitched about, um, I believe a couple of semi, um, two oh. or three semitones down in, in, in Bioshock. Yeah. So his voice is actually somewhat higher than that. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really sound like Andrew Ryan when he's at his normal pitch. Mm-hmm. But there was something about Armin and his conviction with the material and his understanding of the material that would drew me to him. So I, we, you know, we went to our Emily, our sound designer at the time, and said, well, why don't we try pitching him down and see how he sounds? And we pitched him down. And there's always some concern because when you pitch somebody down, you know, that could actually affect, degrade the quality of the voice and then starts to sound artificial. Um, but it worked okay. And, um, you know, he became, you know, it was very clear very quickly that Armin was the guy yeah. that part, that, that part, you know, it's kind of hard to think of, of a different voice in, in that role. Um, you know, he, he needed to be the center, you know, you don't even meet the guy until, you know, the game is almost done. Mm-hmm. And so he has to, that presence of voice has to carry you through, um, through for a long way. There's a play I was in in high school, um, mm. pre-famous play. It became a TV show called, called The Odd Couple. Um, yeah. And there's a technique that Neil Simon uses in it where for the first sort of act of the play, every there's a poker game and everybody's talking about one of the characters. Do you, are you familiar with The Odd Couple? Oh, no. It's basically a story about a very, it's, you know, a sort of a classic story about two divorced men moving mm-hmm. together. One's super clean and super uptight and one's super messy and super relaxed and how they clash with each other, right? Yeah. And it's um, a comedy. And they spend the first act talking about the clean guy, but you never see him. He doesn't appear until uh-huh. the second act. But they set him up so well, by the time he appears, you're prepped for this guy to come in and uh-huh. you're, the audience is heightened to who he is. Yeah. Their senses are heightened. And Andrew Ryan's sort of like that way. You keep hearing about him and hearing about him. He only, he's only in one scene in the entire game, basically. He's in the game for like five minutes. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of him being a physical presence in the game. Um, but that five minutes, we had hours to set him up. Mm-hmm. And that was a really interesting experiment of you not meeting this guy in, until the very end. Um, 
but I, I think that helped. I think that helped to make his impact feel very meaningful when you finally did meet him. Yeah. It's great because, um, like you said, he's he's more of a voice than a character to see to interact, and, and what a character he is. Uh, let's talk about Gary Scheiman. How did you know he's the man for the job? I'm serious, Bioshock. I'm, I'm serious. Bioshock soundtrack is something really special and recognizable, and I think a lot of it comes to you letting the composer go wild. Oh, I, I wouldn't give a lot of credit to myself here. I think, um, I think Emily found him, the sound designer found him, and I was actually opposed to. I think I was generally I don't like I didn't like game scores because game scores tend to be just music that played in the background repeating mm-hmm. at that point. And Emily and Gary sort of convinced me that we could actually score this thing, like, like you know, much more like a film. Um, and once I heard, I, you know, I first, I think the first thing I heard from him might have been that sort of descent to rapture music. Mm-hmm. And I, I could feel the ocean, you know, I could feel the weight of the ocean when I heard that music, and I could wow. feel the sort of mystery. And uh, you know, Gary's score is sort of um, inseparable from the experience of, of playing that game. Um, so I'm grateful that they were both patient with me um, and helping, helping demonstrate, because um, Emily Ridgway and, um, and Gary Scheim both demonstrate to me the, the value of, of, of having that kind of score in the game. Yeah, amazing score. Now, uh, what was the last inspiring game you played and why was it inspiring? I can inspire in different ways. Some games inspire me with their gameplay, like XCOM 2. I'm playing a lot of that again. And yeah. I just love the gameplay, and I love how much choice it gives you. I think the last game that sort of inspired me from a, this is taking you on a journey, sit back and, and sort of, you know, be amazed by the journey was was inside, like you said. Yeah. Um, it, I just, it was like being transported to another world. Um, and um, so I, I, think that was the, I think that was the last time I got really... Um, drawn into something like that yeah uh very well sir you know how much i respect and love you and it was a dream come true for me and i'm proud of myself to finally speak to my hero after many years i look back and i see the 16 years old version of myself playing bioshock and dreaming of talking to the guy who made this and it's really a dream come true and you made it possible for years, I've been looking up to you, telling myself how to become a game designer and a storyteller te- like him. Now I look up to you and say, how can I be a man, honest and humble like him? Thank you, sir. Thank you for everything. Thank you. I mean, I really appreciate the time. And that's, those are, I'm not sure how to, how to respond to those, those very beautiful sentiments, but thank you. Your being is a beautiful response to that. <laughs> thank you so much. In the end... What separates a man from a slave? Money? Power? No. A man chooses. A slave obeys.